0: Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson.
1: I'm Mary Kilpatrick.
0: And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us out with this podcast, giving us the room, the equipment, these brilliant microphones that we are working with right now that make us sound so good. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And when you do that, rate and review us. We're on your favorite podcasting services. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anywhere you can find podcasts. And be sure to rate and review us. Like I said, it helps other people find this podcast, and we're always looking for new listeners. And as always, if you have any feedback, go ahead and send it to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. Before we get into this week's Ohio Matters guest we want to we want to talk about an issue that has been uh going on at the Ohio Matters family and that is
2: is, is this a very special episode of it, Ohio Matters it,
0: it's in an, an intervention in some ways I think uh that is the uh, sporadic appearances by Mary Kilpatrick which some people may have noticed I don't know uh Mary where have you been
1: You know just around like I don't know I just like sometimes I don't want to hang out with you guys like I I have other friends I I
0: can understand why for those of you who don't know Mary Kilpatrick is uh, sort of switching her beat up she is going to be uh, what What is the, the exact type? Is it the shatter? Oh, no, I,
1: I want you to explain my beat, Seth. Please, please explain it to me. That
0: is very apt, isn't it? <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and explain it? Uh, no,
1: um, as Seth- It's a trap. <laughs> as Seth was uh, mansplaining to you, I am um, covering women's issues now. So um, I don't know whether or not, I'm sure all of you read every single article I write and have followed my work throughout my career. But about a year and a half ago, I started writing about women in politics and specifically why there's such a gender gap in women with women in politics. Like, I think I've, like, got the statistics memorized, but they're, like, abysmal. I think 22% of the Ohio State House is female. We have three female members of Congress out of 16. We have no uh, female senators in Ohio. There's never been a woman directly elected to um be Ohio's governor. So I, I was basically started a series talking to women politicians about why this is and, and some of the challenges that they face that maybe their male counterparts don't face and how, um, you know, you can or they can, they think that we can improve women's numbers in uh, elected office. And it's important because, right, like women make up 50% of the population, but they're severely underrepresented in government. And if, you know, they're not women at the table, then half of the population is not represented fairly, in in my opinion, I think. So I went down that whole rabbit hole, and I got really passionate about it. Um, And so a few months ago, I got offered a really great opportunity to sort of explore women's equity issues overall. And the most interesting thing that I found, like as I've talked to women in business and small business and executives and politics and women of all walks of life is it's all sort of the same thing, right? Like, the men are in charge, there are these circles of power, and it's difficult for women to break in and, you know, become executives, become politicians, become, you know, enter these sort of fields. And it's like places that you wouldn't even expect. It's like the superintendent's office at, you know, schools, like there's a gender gap there. Um, so it's really pervasive. It's really interesting. So that's sort of the reason why I haven't been here. But it's not that I don't like like you guys i think you're fun i just have other friends who are girls
0: we've we've mended the fences where can people find your work
1: they can find my work at cleveland.com slash shatter get it shatter is the name of the beat because the glass ceiling is being shattered
0: there we go. Uh, go. Be sure to go on there, read some of her work. It, read all of her work, frankly. Don't read some. Read all read of it.
1: Read all of it. And you can also like us. Um, we're on Facebook. Um, so I will still be on the podcast. I still talk to men sometimes. So maybe I'll be on an episode with a man. But mostly I'm focused on women's issues. So what do you guys think about that? <laughs>
2: So speaking of women in politics, yeah, so let's, y- yeah, you guys had a had a seamless woman
0: seamless transition in, on um, the show. Yeah, this week on Ohio Matters, we had Betsy Rader. She is the Democratic candidate for the 14th congressional district. Incredibly interesting. It's it's uh, that that district looks uh, competitive. It probably you know maybe shouldn't be. Um, It really hasn't been for the past about 15 years, but uh, Betsy's a very interesting candidate. I don't know, Mary, Mary, what'd you think?
1: She's basically the prime example of this national trend, uh, this thing, like the year of the woman is it's like, you know, I guess official title. But we're seeing more women run for Congress um, than we have in in the recent past or maybe ever, um, mainly on the Democratic side. And there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm Um, among women who are trying to seek office. And in Ohio, we really don't have that many female candidates who are her challengers, who are hoping to enter office, who are sort of new to politics and and going at it like Betsy is. Um, And so she's kind of an example of a national trend, I'd say, that we're seeing of just this huge amount of enthusiasm um, among female candidates. Um, And, you know, none and, and Betsy said it, like none of these candidates like will say explicitly, like I'm running because Donald Trump, you know. But like there is, I think, a grain of that to why a lot of these women are running, like his sort of the perceived threat that some women have, um, when they think about Donald Trump to their, you know, reproductive rights or, you know, uh, just some of the things that he said about women, um, some of the comments that he's made about women. Is a motivating factor, I think, for a lot of these candidates, and I think it's not necessarily the reason why Betsy Rader would say she's running. I think she'd say she's running because she's a healthcare advocate, and she has a lot of, you know, passion behind making sure that, you know, healthcare is fair and affordable. But I, I think that Donald Trump and and his election and sort of the enthusiasm around women and and women's marches, like I, I think that sparks something as far as her decision to run.
0: It was a very uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, With that, let's go ahead and get to the beginning of it. Betsy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today. All right, let's get into it. So you're a lifelong Ohioan. For people who don't know, you are running for the 14th Congressional District as a Democrat. You are an employment attorney. You focus on kind of whistleblower and uh, discrimination cases. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your background, about growing up in Ohio and kind of where you come from and all that.
3: Sure, thanks for asking. Uh, Well, I was born in Coshocton, uh, which is down kind of central east Ohio, and uh, it's part of Appalachia. My dad was a game warden there, which is kind of like the police officer for the game preserves. And my uh, mom had grown up down in Thornville, Ohio on a dairy farm, and uh, she was a stay-at-home mom back then. And then uh, we ended up moving eventually to Newark, Ohio, which is east of Cleveland. And it's kind of a, you know, 40,000-person manufacturing type of town. And I went to the public schools there. Uh, When my mom was nine, she and my dad divorced. And they had four kids. And she had a high school education and virtually no employment experience. Uh, So we were really poor. Uh, she was a single mom working really low-pay jobs, you know, struggling to find childcare, And uh, so it was kind of tough growing up and uh, had to start working at a, you know, in an early age, paper routes and fast food and uh, demembrating the frozen chicken at Wendy's at six in the morning. So I uh, worked real hard and uh, then ended up being able to get a scholarship to go to Ohio State.
0: And from there, you uh, went on to Yale, correct? I did. So you're one of the only Ivy Leaguers we've had on this show, the other being Steve Dettelbach, who is the Democrat who's running for attorney general. Uh, how do you think you managed to get from Coshocton to Yale? I mean, it seems like a uh, an atypical route. I don't know how many Yale graduates come from Coshocton. <laughs>
3: uh, there, were, there were probably not many. Um, but I think that the thing, and you know, I, I don't know if you saw, I had this op-ed that was in the Washington Post That was a rebuttal to hillbillyology that was written by somebody else who went from a town in southern Ohio to Ohio State to Yale Law School. And when I wrote that op ed, which ended up kind of going viral last year and was named one of their top op eds, when I sat, I sat and really thought um, when I wrote that op ed about, you know, for instance, why did I achieve that when, for instance, my own siblings um, didn't end up going to college out of high school? And it was because I had opportunities. It was, you know, public school teachers who encouraged me to go to college when that was not necessarily an expectation. It was friends' parents who helped me out and made sure we had, you know, dinner every night. And, you know, it was federally subsidized student loans uh, that bridged the gap between working and scholarships. So, and I think there were just people along the way I remember a school teacher, for instance. I was good in music. And I remember her actually coming to our house to talk to my mom to say, we gotta find a way to get Betsy a violin. She's really good at music. And if she had her own violin, it would really help her succeed. You know, she didn't have to do that. So it was people who really extended themselves to me. And not everybody has that. And so I was lucky. And so I think that's why I was kind of able to dream big and have those aspirations to work toward is because I had people that were reaching out to me like that. And I also kind of always had this burning desire to make a difference. Um, I really hated the fact that because we were poor, we got pushed around a lot, got evicted from houses for no good reason. I really hated that feeling of not having a say in what was happening to me and in my family not having a say. So I was really driven to have a job like being a lawyer where I saw lawyers as people who had a way of getting control and they had a way of not just – having a say in their own destiny, but they had a way of advocating for other people and making a difference for those people. And so that's what really drove me to work really, really hard, didn't have much of a social life, um, and and be able to go to Yale to law school because I just really had this kind of burning desire to make a difference.
1: So you grew up in small town Ohio, you went on to a big state school, Ohio State, and then went to Yale, a very elite, you know, private law school. I mean, was that an eye-opening experience for you? Was that a difficult transition? Because I'm sure many people who were your classmates at Yale Law uh, didn't necessarily come from your background or necessarily understand the experience of being poor at all.
3: Yeah, uh, it was interesting uh, from the very beginning, actually, because my parents, um I did not have helicopter parents. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) I showed up in New Haven, Connecticut, totally on my own, uh, without a car. And uh, for instance, I had been put on a wait list for the law school dorm And I showed up, and I didn't have any place to live. And I had to just take this little efficiency apartment that it turned out was above a pornographic bookstore. Um, (laughs) And I just didn't, didn't know what I was doing. I was this young woman, and I ended up in this terrible place. And it turned out the man next door to me was very violent and ended up threatening me. And and I, I, I have
0: to say, I'm mildly surprised that the most upstanding individuals don't live next to the pornographic bookstore. <laughs>
3: yeah. uh, I just needed a place quick and it was cheap. Yeah. Um, and so and, you know, people just had no idea what I was dealing with. And then, you know, like other kids I found out had you know, credit cards. And I went and visited their apartments and their apartments in law school were still nicer than anything I've ever lived in. Um, and so it was very eye-opening to me. The idea, I remember one guy had like a $50 a week allowance and he was allowed to just buy whatever with it. And I remember just being awestruck. I was like, imagine having $50 a week to do whatever you want with. <laughs> um, but you know, they couldn't tell from looking at me that I was any different from them. And they certainly, I did not, you know, in J.D. Vance's book, he talks a little bit about being people being snobs and stuff, and they really weren't. I mean, mm-hmm. people were really, really nice. Uh, it's just that they had no idea. You know, they had their experience, which they kind of probably figured was somewhat universal, and I had my experience, and they really had no way of realizing, you know, kind of how different an experience I, I was even then having. They've been kind of surprised, actually, when I've reconnected with them over the years and I talk about some of the things I went through in law school, just trying to make ends meet and survive. They're like, wow, Betsy, I'm sorry. I had no idea.
1: And then I guess my other question, too, I mean, you went to law school at a time when maybe there weren't so many women in your class, and that was sort of another um, thing that you were dealing with, that you were probably one of a few women, right? I mean, would you say? Actually, by the time
3: I was there, mm-hmm. I don't know the exact numbers, but you might be surprised. The numbers of women in law school have been pretty 50-50 for quite a long time. Um, I was in law school, admittedly, uh, 30-some years ago, so it has been a while. But even by then, um, it, was, it wasn't real lopsided. Um, and I didn't really feel any particular challenges in law school. I think what you find um, is, is after law school, and I think that's what can be kind of a shock for women, is that in law school, you don't feel like there's any difference in your opportunities. I started running into it, I will say, when I started interviewing for jobs in law school, where, for instance, a big firm came and interviewed on campus there, and I wanted to do labor law. And the guy told me that, you know, women can't do labor law, Uh, it's a men's area. And then there was a big company that was interviewing there and I was already engaged to my husband in law school and there was a big company that interviewed, and they were describing how their process for their attorneys was that you would move every six months to different part of the, parts of the country um, to acclimate you to the whole company, which, yeah, I'm sure is a, a great idea in some ways. But I said, what do you do about your husband and his job? You know, it was clear that the assumption was that you would have a trailing spouse who would not be employed, which, you know, is not common for women then or now and so that's when you first started getting the hints of the challenges you would face after law school
0: so you mentioned some of the jobs that you interviewed I imagine a Yale law school degree is um, <clears throat> basically a ticket to just about anywhere you want to go why'd you come back to Ohio why not to a you know big law firm where you know you could be making a ton of money
3: Uh, It's interesting. I certainly, when I went off to law school, probably didn't think I was going to come back to Ohio. I really was thinking I would do some sort of public interest law, uh, but it didn't necessarily, you know, there frankly weren't very many public interest law opportunities in Ohio back then. And so figured I would be in a city more like D.C. or something that had more of those opportunities. But Um, as it turned out, like my, um, my husband was here, (laughs) I had met him at Ohio state and we ended up getting married after my second year of law school. So he was here and I wanted to come back and be with him. And so I ended up taking jobs here, uh, every summer and my, uh, actually my second summer, I had accepted a job in New York city and I decided I just didn't want to do that. It would have paid a lot of money it really would have helped me keep down my student loans and i i decided i just didn't want to do that and i took a job at cincinnati legal aid and basically earned minimum wage and ended up working again at cincinnati legal aid a little bit after i graduated from law school and then worked for a federal judge in cincinnati and have spent my whole life in ohio i just i've been kind of you know just drawn back to ohio for both personal reasons and because yeah, it's where my heart is.
0: So you mentioned, uh, some of the snobbiness or the lack of snobbiness rather at, uh, you know, when you went to Yale, I'm curious, how did people in your hometown react to you going away to Yale? You know, Yale is the Ivy leagues are called the Ivy leagues for a reason. Right. And kind of seen as this upper crust, uh, sort of society. How did the, um, you know, the people in Coshocton, I mean, was there a reaction at all? Was it just pride or did people think, Oh, that's, You know, she went away to this bougie school or something like that.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I, I ended up, I went through the Newark schools. And I actually, for instance, I'm one of those people. I'm always volunteering for things. So I helped organize our last class reunion, for instance. And so, and we had a graduating class of like 700 people. So I have stayed in touch with people over the years. And they have never been anything but proud and supportive. And especially, I think what you find as you grow older and you're in touch with people that you grew up with is is they know you so well. And so those folks that I went to kindergarten through high school with, they know know, what my life was like, and they know how hard I worked. And it's actually very – it's very gratifying and humbling when those people are so supportive of you throughout the rest of your life. And now that I'm running for Congress, you know they will post really nice things on Facebook about how they've known me for 40 years and that I've always been dedicated to helping people. And it feels really good.
0: So we're going through a bit of your resume here real quick. You uh, were previously counsel for the Cleveland Clinic, correct? Right. And uh, you also worked for uh, Court Appointed Special Advocates, which is uh, like child advocates in the courts. Now you do employment attorney, or or rather you are an employment attorney. I'm uh, and you specialize in whistleblowers, and I think that's interesting because you've got sort of a specialty in what has become an issue, kind of nationwide with the whole like leaker phenomenon and whatnot, or quote unquote leaker kind of thing. So, uh, what what got you into discrimination, um, law and whistleblowing, like whistleblowing protections?
3: That idea of standing up for people who otherwise don't have a voice, um, who can just get ground down by the system. And so, you know, whistleblower in the employment context, um, and then there's also an area called Key Law that I've done some work in where you represent people who are whistleblowing on government fraud. Um, you know, those are people who are often taking issues to their bosses, you know, trying to take issues up the chain of command, and they're getting penalized for it or often fired for it. And so those people are in a hard position. Most people can't afford to lose their job. And standing up for them is something that's very meaningful to me because they are trying to do the right thing. If they know that their company is committing billing fraud to the government, for instance, now they're trying to save the taxpayers' money, they're trying to help their company do the right thing, and they're being harmed for it, punished for it. And so standing up for them uh, makes me feel really good. And it's the right thing to do.
0: Do you have any notable cases that kind of come to mind?
3: Yeah, I have to think for a minute because I have to be really careful about attorney-client privilege and Mm -hmm. confidentiality. Um, so you know, I, I will talk in in broad terms where you couldn't identify the case because a lot of times what happens to cases is they don't go to trial and they get mm. settled confidentially. So I have represented people though, for instance, who uh knew that their company was um, uh, you know, upcharging for medical procedures, for instance. Um, charging more than um, was legally allowed and knowingly doing so. And so they were trying to get the company to do the right thing, and they were being penalized for it, maybe not given a promotion or terminated. And so that's an example of the type of whistleblower. Um, In more of a traditional employment context, you have people who speak up, for instance, about not being given overtime pay. And they might bring up a claim under the Fair Labor Standards Act that people are misclassified. And so they bring, um, you know, they bring that to the attention of management and they are terminated for it instead of being given the, the pay that they were entitled to. So those are the types of cases that I am motivated by and, and really like being able to help people with.
0: So we've had this debate kind of nationally about what a whistleblower is or who a whistleblower is. And I'm curious, who do you think a whistleblower is? Is is a Chelsea Manning type of whistleblower? Is an Edward Snowden type of whistleblower? Is a Lily Ledbetter a whistleblower? Who, who makes a whistleblower? Or what makes a whistleblower?
3: I guess of those three, you know, the type of person I represent is the Lily Ledbetter type person uh, who uh, and that case, you know, she found that she was being paid uh, less than somebody doing the same job and that there was a pattern between men and women. And so it's, you're bringing, in her case, she's bringing up an issue not just with her, but a pattern. And uh, I think one thing as an attorney that I'm really careful about when I'm advising clients is that you do have to respect again confidentiality classified information the law so when you're being a whistleblower uh, of course i would always advise people to make sure you know yes you want to do the right thing and you want to expose corruption but you also are not a law unto yourself and you do need to respect you know the the law when you are whistleblowing <laughs> and so uh i am very careful about that when i'm representing clients who are potential whistleblowers
0: I also wanted to ask about your family. Uh, Can you tell us just a little bit about your family background?
3: In terms of my current current family? family? Uh, Well, I've been married to my husband. As I said, we were college sweethearts, and we've been married 33 years now. And I live out in Geauga County, which uh, I think I was drawn to because it reminds me a lot of the parts of Ohio I grew up in. We live in an old farmhouse, an old 1847 farmhouse. It used to be a sheep farm. And we have uh, three kids. Uh, They're 28, 26, and 23. Uh, My oldest son is a professional ballet dancer, and uh, my middle son is in business, and my daughter just graduated from Ohio State in May and is volunteering full-time for my campaign, which I really appreciate, and uh, my two sons are both gay. And I talk about that um, in the context of the selection because certainly making sure that they have equal opportunities is really important to me as a mom.
0: Where does your son do ballet? Uh,
3: At a company called Wim Him Contemporary Ballet in Seattle.
1: That's amazing. Like the, I watch a lot of ballet documentaries on Netflix just because I like watching interesting documentaries on Netflix and the commitment and time and what it does to their feet. Um, <laughs> they're very proud of their ugly yeah, feet. <laughs> it's just amazing. So what a uh, fantastic career. You know, I always like to ask this of individuals who have had long marriages. What do you think the secret is to uh, making it last as long as 33 years? I mean, that's quite a long time. <laughs> Picking the right person. <laughs>
3: and yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, my husband and I, a lot of times, people think of us as very different. Um, I graduated from Ohio State in three years. He graduated from Ohio State in seven years. Uh, I Is was- he a doctor? uh no (laughs) Uh, he actually uh he works for a record company in uh, uh in the music industry so um so people sometimes you know assume that we're very different people and they're like wow it's amazing you guys got together and have stayed together but i think right off the bat it was really one of those love at first sight things when we met and i think right off the bat we could tell we had similar values and you know you really see that when you do something like run for office it is definitely a family thing um and he is such a huge support and um so patient with the fact that i am so busy with all this and earning no income while i run for office and he supports us and uh you know really i get a little emotional about it you know you, i'm really fortunate to be married to somebody who has always been so incredibly supportive of all the different types of projects I've decided to get our
1: family involved in. You said he works in the record industry. What yeah. what kind of work does he do? That's a little different than politics <laughs> or even law. Well, it's uh, it's
3: it all involves marketing in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he his job is to help make sure that you know the radio stations hear the music and get to like it and play it. Uh, Which is an industry that has really changed a lot over the past 30 years. And, uh, but so really, you know, he does it's relationship building, it's, uh, you know, making sure that people hear the music and he pitches like why this music would appeal to your audience. And so, in some ways, it's kind of like, politics uh, and that you're trying to relate to people and help them to understand why you both are moving toward the same goal. <laughs> well,
0: Mary, maybe Mary's dream of uh, being a pop star can stay alive for just a little <laughs> bit longer then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we we tend to ask people about their backgrounds and most of the people that we have on the show have a um, at least tangentially political background in some way. You know, Ken Harbaugh has never been elected to office, but he was a veteran. Uh, you know, served in the military. Um, I guess you did work for CASA for a while, and you've run for a couple of positions. So I'm curious, what is it about your background, which um, in many ways could be kind of comparable to a lot of people's backgrounds, thinks uh, make, makes you think that uh, you should run for Congress, that you should run for office in general? Mm-hmm. I'm always interested in that.
3: Well, I've always been really involved in community service, which I see this as a form of community service. And so, you know, for instance, I did things like serve on the park board and serve on the zoning commission and unelected offices. I served on the board of United Way and Geauga County and all sorts of different ways of giving back to my community. And uh, then I was drawn when I did run before it was it was not it was always because uh, I felt a sense of community service. And, you know, being a township trustee is, that's not something that you aim for because there's glory, honor, or money in it. You do it because you care about your community and you want to serve your community. And so that's why I was drawn to run for Congress, was for similar reasons, as I saw a gap in what was happening, I saw a void that needed to be filled, and I looked back at my experience, and uh, my talents, and decided that this was a a void that I could fill uh, by running for Congress and standing up for people in my district.
0: Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting capital letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash c-a-p-i-t-o-l-l-e-t-t-e-r.
2: So Mary, you said earlier that you felt that Betsy Rader was kind of an example of sort of the the year of the woman, or at least an example that we have in Ohio. So why is that?
1: I think she is because she has never held elected office. She's only run for uh, much smaller positions on a local level before, and, and I don't think she's ever won. And I think that she... She is uh, new to politics. She's running for Congress. She said that she really decided to run after the healthcare debate and whether or not Congress was going to reform um, the ACA, Obamacare. And that's when she really got energized about running. Um, but she said when she w- was sort of at these the Women's March in Cleveland, the, the sort of seed was planted for her to think about running. And I think that's sort of the same sort of genesis that a lot of women are running.
2: Did, did she have any observations about what it's specifically like, I guess, or maybe, you know, just from the perspective of somebody who's running for office as a woman?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, it's it's what you hear from a lot of female candidates, like, your women, it's harder to break into these sort of circles of power is, is how I've sort of heard it, which sounds very sinister. But it's the people, it's the power brokers, it's the people with the money, it's the people who write the checks to help candidates succeed. And in, you know, in today's world, money is so important uh, to run a successful campaign. And I think that she acknowledged the fact that it is more difficult for women candidates to um, raise the funds that they need to succeed. Um, and it's because they're not sort of in already in these sort of male-dominated uh, fundraising networks.
0: With that, let's get back to the interview with Betsy Rader.
1: So we're going to kind of switch gears. I want to ask you, what were you doing the night that Donald Trump was elected president back in 2016?
3: I was actually working as a legal poll observer. So uh that evening I had I had spent the entire day uh at some polling places making sure that the voter laws were followed. And uh, so then, by the time I got home, because you know after the polls close, there's all these, you know, legally required procedures of how you lock down the machines and preserve the integrity of the vote. So I got home fairly late um, that night. Uh, so it was probably 10 or 11 by the time I got home. And then we stayed up. And I think that Hillary Clinton ended up conceding at about two or three in the morning. And then I spent the night on the phone with my kids, who were terrified. Um, My sons were really concerned and wanted to know, what does this mean for us? Are we still going to have equal protection under the law? And that's how I spent my night.
1: You know... uh We talk a lot about this blue wave in 2018 where there's a lot of energy around the Democratic movement, um, and we're seeing a lot of women um, throw their hat into the race and decide to run, um, especially on the Democratic side. Um, I'm curious, did Donald Trump's election as president have any influence on your decision to run for Congress?
3: Sure, sure. Um, And I would say I had really never kind of plated running for Congress before. And I would say when we got together here in Cleveland for the Women's March um, and you watched the outpouring of women across the world, um, what you saw, I think, was a collective plea for respect and for our voices to be heard. And that same alarm that my sons had, I think you saw these women having that, are we respected Will we be listened to in the future? And I—I I wouldn't say that during the March I really started thinking yet about running for Congress. That came later when they were trying to repeal the ACA. Um, but certainly, all those things ended up adding up because they were all pieces of this, uh, you know, of this continuing fear that we really didn't have a democracy anymore. That we really didn't have a system where people were being heard anymore.
1: So around the time of the Women's March, that's when you sort of started thinking maybe um, about politics, you'd say, running for Congress? Or was that when the seed was sort of planted? I would say the
3: seed was planted. I can't say that at Mm -hmm. the end of the Women's March, I was thinking about Congress. Uh, I would say that came really when I was going to David Joyce's Mm -hmm. office with other people who were really concerned about our health being um, impacted by what Congress wanted to do. Um, but certainly, I think when I was making the ultimate decision last April whether to declare for Congress, all of those things came together because it was really this idea of they're not listening to us. They're not representing us. And it was all all came together.
1: Do you consider yourself part of this year of the women in 2018 movement, you know, like I said, this much discussed increase in women, especially on the Democratic side, running for Congress this year?
3: Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, when you, what I think is so inspiring and uh, gives me such motivation to do the hard work, because it's hard work running for Congress, when you see the grassroots um, groups, which uh, certainly have men in them too, but it's a lot of women. And it's a lot of women my age, it's a lot of women in their 50s and 60s, a lot of whom have never been engaged in any way in politics before, um, who are now totally engaged. And who are seeing, you know, through things like, you know, the activism on, on the healthcare law, they are seeing that their activism can make a difference, um, and they want to keep that going forward. So, you know, this year of the woman, I don't think um, – you can focus on the women who are actually running, but I think what you really need to focus on is the women who are doing the hard work. Isn't that how it often is? <laughs> it's the women doing the hard work behind the scenes, and right. they're still doing that. You know, we saw that in the Virginia elections. You saw it in Alabama. They've talked about the African American women and how they turned out the vote. You know, it's I just see this incredible energy of women, and I do think that. It means something to them to see a woman running and running a really competitive race. I know when I was first running, I talked to some women who'd been really involved in the presidential election, and they'd really thought they were going to see the first woman president, and and maybe they're in their 70s now, and for them, this is they've been working on this for 50 years, and when I first talked to them, it was like they have been punched in the stomach, and the wind had been knocked out of them. They're like, I'm never going to see in my lifetime women in... High political offices. My district's never had a woman. Um, you know, the state of Ohio has never had, or my district. So the state of Ohio has never had a female senator. And my district's never had a female representative. So my district has never been represented at the federal level by a woman. Um, and, and now you know this year these women have got so much renewed energy because you know they're like okay it's not over <laughs> yeah you know, this is still maybe going to happen before the end of my life that we are going to see women really come into equality of power in washington so that makes makes me feel really good um, that i can be a part of that
1: do you have any other thoughts about why so many women are running for congress this year in record numbers i mean you know what can you sort of pin that trend to
3: I I think, you know, it reflects kind of the things I've talked about there, that um, that so many women are tired of not feeling like they are truly represented. Um, That, you know, you when you you know, you had to have this fight this year over breastfeeding on the floor of the Senate that, it, you know, it should feel kind of weird to people that that hasn't been an issue yet. But this is the first time that that really had to come to a head as an issue. You know, the fact that we still just have 20 percent of our representatives in Congress are women and that that I forget the exact figure, but that's one of the lower in the world. Um, you know, there are countries all over the world that have much more equal representation of women in Congress or in their bodies and we do bring different perspectives um you know i have experienced sexual harassment i have been discriminated against you know when i told you those stories in law school you, know, you can't be a labor lawyer because you're a girl um you know i've had those experiences um i took time off to stay home with my kids because back in the 90s part-time work was not a thing um and so you know there came a point my husband's on the road a lot i came in time i just stayed home with my three kids and so i've had experiences that a lot of men cannot bring to the table like that so when we're talking about things like family leave um, i bring
1: experiences
3: that they haven't had
1: so Do you think we're going to see more women elected to Congress in 2018 than we've seen before? Do you think the trend's going to pan out?
3: I hope so. I don't think there's any guarantee of that. because uh, there still, uh, there's still a lot of wind uh, in our face. Um, there's some wind behind us, but there's also wind in our face still. Uh, you see a lot of women running who are running, for instance, in districts that are very gerrymandered, um, that people don't consider to be competitive. And unfortunately, what happens when that's the case is that it's really hard to raise money. Um, And there is still a lot of special interest money and big money on the other side. And if you can't raise money, it makes it really hard to get your message out and run a competitive race. I also think if you're a woman like me, you know, I spend a lot of my time uh, doing community volunteer work. Uh, working you know running a social service um, agency uh, doing things that uh, don't necessarily put you into contact with wealthy donor circles and so um, and so I've got a lot of great supporters Uh, they're not necessarily people who can donate huge sums of money and so I think women still face this challenge with fundraising And unfortunately, media is very expensive, and you really need media to reach voters. And so I still think that there are some problems, and you do still have some, I think, challenges with women being held to different standards. You know, I'll have people say to me, well, can, you know, can you be tough enough? I'll say, well, I am a trial lawyer, Um, you know, but, you know, there's still those, you know, there's still some stereotypes that come into play when you're a woman running for office. And I think sometimes, especially when you're a woman over 50 running for office.
0: Is that what you think has held women back in Ohio? I mean, it seems, you know, if you look at some of the demographics of some of the offices that have, uh, you know, been held by women, it doesn't look great. You know, we had a woman governor, but it was for 14 days. She wasn't elected. She wasn't elected. Uh, we, like you said, we never had a woman senator, uh, very few women congressmen, Three. Uh, or congresswomen, I guess I should say. Three out
1: of 16?
0: Three out of 16 right now. What is it about Ohio specifically that is that makes it, I guess, hard for a woman to run, I guess, successfully?
3: Hmm. That's interesting. I've never thought of it in the context of how Ohio uh, might be particularly difficult. Um. Like, again, I can say that in terms of getting your message out, uh, it may be easier in a place, Yeah, you know, I, I don't know enough about the statistics of how many women come from different states. It may be easier for women in a place like New York or Massachusetts um, to raise money And maybe, therefore, um, it is easier for them to get their message out and to reach voters with that message. And so maybe that's maybe I think that is one problem you see across the country is that in the heartland, um, it is harder to raise the resources. So it makes it harder for everyone um, who's not backed. You know, I don't take, for instance, corporate PAC money. Um, And so for anyone who's running a grassroots campaign campaign, across the heartland, I think it's harder to raise money, and that may be particularly exacerbated for women.
1: You know, that's that's sort of one of the things that boggles my mind, because I've, I've talked to a lot of women candidates, and they all talk about how difficult it, it is to break into these fundraising networks, these circles of power, um, because if you think about who the incumbents are, who the power brokers are, the majority of them are men, right? And I I don't know whether or not this is just a question or a comment. That, but I think it's, I think it's nuts in twenty eighteen that it is difficult for more, still more difficult for women to raise the money when you know a lot of them have comparable um, resumes to their you know male counterparts.
3: I think it's the same thing that you see in the corporate world, frankly. Um, when you look at the composition of boards of companies and how little women are represented there, despite numerous studies showing that companies do much better when there's more diversity on corporate boards, when you look at the leadership of top you know, 500 companies, uh, you still see this issue. And I think sometimes it's that unconscious bias I mean we all like people who are like us you know Mm -hmm. it's just kind of natural that people gravitate to people who are similar to them who like to talk about the same things who have similar experiences and um and you know that's why Uh, You know, it's important sometimes to intentionally diversify, that you have to be more conscious about who you're hiring and who you are promoting, instead of just doing what's comfortable, instead of just hiring, you know, your friends' kids. uh, It's important to actually post the job and get applications and treat them seriously. Um, And so I think that uh, what happens in politics is what we see still happening everywhere. Um, that the people who are already in leadership are within a certain parameter and they tend to want to mentor and promote. uh, You know, it's just I don't think they're intentionally a lot of the times trying to hurt women and help men. I just think they're more, they just feel more simpatico sometimes with the people who are more similar to them.
1: (laughs) Right. So, I mean, we've sort of gone through the problem. What do you think the fix is? How do you think we can, you know, get money behind women you know basically give women as fair a shake as, as their male counterparts in politics.
3: I think it's that intentionality mm-hmm. that you have to you have to recognize that it is a problem um, and that it is an unfairness and that it is inhibiting a robust democracy with real representation. I think you have to identify it as a problem which groups like Emily's list have. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, they support women candidates and the idea is to, you know, give them um, financial resources and visibility early on. But, you know, groups like that, you know, there's a lot of women, for instance, running this year. There's only so much they can do. Um, and I so I think we need more, you know, what we really need, if you really wanted to address the real root of the problem, what we really need is campaign finance reform. Um, if this wasn't all about money, And having to raise enormous amounts of money due to unfettered money in politics, uh, money would not be such an impediment to women running. And a lot of people, you know, it's also a problem, obviously, for people of color. Um, You know, there is there's all sorts of skewed um, results to our representation because of money in politics. So. To truly address it, uh, that's one thing that I have really um, talked a lot about a lot in this race, and I have a really robust uh, agenda for campaign finance reform because I don't think we have a true democracy until we get to that problem.
1: This will be my last question on the subject, and Seth, I don't know if you have anything else, but. You know, we've talked about, you know, the, the barriers facing women entering politics and, you know, the ways that we can fix it. Why do you think it's important to have women represented in elected office? What do they bring to the table? You know, why is it a problem that it's difficult for women to enter office today?
3: Because you really need people in Congress who are in touch with pe- what people's real lives are like. And if you have a Congress that's full of men, many of whom are very wealthy, uh, many of whom have never had to deal with, I can't afford childcare, Many have never been fired because they had to stay home with a sick relative. Uh, many of them haven't had these experiences of being a sandwich generation. And you know, I talk to women all the time who had to give up a job because they were taking care of a parent with Alzheimer's um, or a child with autism. You know, it's a real problem in this country that we have this uh, political class, uh, this class of people who have not lived lives like the rest of us and don't know what it's like. I'll never forget Uh, Kellyanne Conway in an interview where she was talking about the Medicaid and this is a woman mind you so there's um, um, but it's this idea of not having had the experiences of other people where she talked about you know people on Medicaid should just get a good job with benefits (laughs) It's like well indeed I'm sure everybody would like to have a good job with benefits it's not a simple matter of choosing or not choosing that so we really need people who've had common experiences and women have had experiences that men haven't had
1: So I think we should sort of step away from talking about Betsy Rader as a woman, because like that is like, you know, one fact about her biography. She's also Mm -hmm. um, an attorney. She sort of grew up in poverty and was able to sort of come out of it on the other side as a, you know, Ivy League educated, um, you know, employment attorney, employment attorney, right? Yeah. Um, So let's talk about her as a candidate. Does she have, like, we've talked a lot about her being the woman candidate and the pros and cons of being a woman candidate. But, like, does she have a shot at winning?
0: I think she's got a pretty good shot at winning, all things considered. You look at that race, you look at that district, you look at the dynamics, you look at her as a uh, candidate. And, yeah, it's not like she's just some name on a ballot or anything like that. She's got a pretty compelling backstory. She's got, uh, you know, professional credentials that i think could make her very competitive. She's got an environment that not only, you know, is favoring uh, you know, women necessarily, but is favoring Democrats. You can see that via the uh Dave Joyce ad where he's kind of running from Republicans and criticizing the president. Uh that's pretty atypical in really any presidential or any uh, congressional race for you to be not just even saying hey, you know I'm my own man and I'm I'm an independent voice or whatever there's always been that kind of maverick type in there, but to go in and actually say I stood up to Republicans, my party and I stood up to the president that's President Trump. Um, it, it's a telling sign. I don't know that it necessarily indicates that like, oh, it's gonna be uh, you know, margin of error race or anything like that but she's been able to raise a boatload of money she's been i i call her candidacy or her campaign pretty successful by just about any measure right now
1: she's on the uh d triple c's red to blue list right now right yes um and i i don't know like i've i've spent some time in her district like it's the cleveland suburbs like you know i i could see it being you know not necessarily like a slam dunk but like a close race at least
2: yeah we talked about this a few weeks ago actually and I I remember I used the phrase like I'd be shocked if Dave Joyce were to lose this race and the reason I said that was that he's an incumbent with some profile and obviously the geography of the district is, is beneficial Republicans um however you know uh I think that uh Raider is the type of candidate that needs to run to be able to win that race and I think when we saw the results in Ohio 12 which was It's basically, I I would call it like a less Republican district or a more Republican district than this one is. And clearly that was in uh, striking distance. So sure, why not? Like it would be, um, you know, I I think that everything that I've seen is that she's put herself in a position to take advantage of the moment. And I guess that's, we'll just have to see how it turns out.
1: Do you think it's a sign or something is a glimmer of sort of the movement, the fact that some of these districts right now are are competitive for Democrats Well
2: I saw a sign um, and it wasn't that Ace of bass song uh, it was that ad that Seth mentioned earlier from Dave Joyce. I mean uh, that is a Republican incumbent running basically running against the president in a in a Republican district and you know you don't run that ad if you're not scared uh, of possibly you know losing. I mean we saw from the Facebook analytics that that ad was targeted at women which, uh, is, you know, there's been polling out there that that is the weakest kind of point of the Republican coalition. So yeah, definitely. That was, that's what, that's what kind of convinced me, honestly.
1: And, you know, sitting down with her, like she is a very charismatic candidate.
2: We've been blabbering a lot, but just one more thing. Uh, I guess I want to give credit where credit's due. So uh you can't see it, dear listener, but. uh
1: So Seth, several months ago, I don't know whether or not you remember, but ECOT, the uh, sort of disgraced charter school had a little sale where they sold off basically everything. Um, And Seth actually bought a like 100 pin box.
2: He quote unquote won the auction.
1: Yeah. He won the auction, spent uh, like $35 um, buying uh, e-cop pins. Don't
0: tell people what I paid. How am I going to resell these? (laughs)
1: So we just have like a ton of ECOT pins in the office and ECOT is like a very like polarizing issue in the election like Democrats are really pouncing on um, Republicans for the way uh, the charter school situation was handled and no one has noticed not even Steve Dettelbach who like ECOT is like his thing nobody has noticed until
2: until uh, we had coffee the other day with with uh betty's campaign manager uh, brexton isaacs and he's like by the way is, is that an ecop patent and we're like yes it is you're literally the first person to notice it and we've been bringing these things to i don't know basically every, every single like yeah like
1: <laughs> jane Tenken didn't notice it steve dedelbach didn't notice it which again is crazy
2: so even if I guess you know uh, regardless of how election day turns out, I guess Brexton's the big winner of, of at least the Ohio matters uh, cycle at this point I so
1: think. so now you're in on the secret like long-term listener who's gotten into like minute like 103 or wherever well, we are egg, yeah, yeah so <laughs> like now you'll know that we're always waiting to see whether or not they notice the ECOP pen.
0: Email me if you want an ECOP pen. I'm just kidding. Don't
3: do that.
1: (laughs) We have a lot. (laughs) Yeah.
0: With that, let's get to the rest of the interview with Betsy Rader. So, you're running for... Congress in the 14th district just to uh, give people a little bit of an idea where that is it's northeast Ohio basically as far northeast Ohio as you can go uh, part of Ki- parts of let me get my paper here parts of Cuyahoga kind of the eastern and southeastern Cleveland suburbs uh, Lake County Jaga County Ashtabula County and parts of Trumbull portage and Summit counties uh, right now it's represented by Dave Joyce what is it about the 14th district and it's probably worth mentioning that that district has it I don't has it ever elected a Democrat Oh, sure. As it, it did back in the day, right?
3: Sure. I think the last time was maybe 2003.
0: Yeah, but then Steve LaTourette held the seat Steve for LaTourette a while. Steve LaTourette was very popular. Yeah, <laughs> now Dave Joyce. Held, so I hadn't elected a Democrat in a while. So what is it about that, that seat that makes you think you can win?
3: Well, this is a district, for instance, that Sherrod Brown has always won. Uh, it's a district where uh, Barack Obama essentially tied uh, in 2008 it's uh, actually a much more democratic district than the one where daniel O'Connor in the special election has essentially tied um, daniel O'Connor's district is an r plus seven it's called this district is an r plus five which the politicos generally consider this to be a classic swing district um, dave joyce has only been in office this is just his third term Never really had anybody um, run a campaign like this before that was raising significant money that got on the Democratic Party's red to blue list. So and of course, you know, there's a lot of issues going on this year that's leading a lot of independent voters and moderate Republican voters to switch.
0: So what kind of messaging are you doing in that district?
3: What I find when I have meet and greets or go door to door is people are really still concerned about health care. The very thing that brought me into the race is the thing that people are still really concerned about. Nothing's more fundamental to people than their health and their family's health. And so they're really concerned about the fact that nothing's been done to address rising costs. I hear a lot about pharmaceutical prices Um, there's a guy just a few days ago almost brought me to tears in front of an event because he got up and talked about how he had a medication he needed that was $200 a month and he can't afford it so he's just not taking it Um, you know I talked to another woman the other night she was talking about how she lives on a thousand dollars a month and you know a lot of things aren't covered by Medicare Um, and so it's it's really heartbreaking and, you know, we had this push me, pull you, yes, no, yes, no, repeal, don't repeal. And then they just kind of all threw up their hands and walked away. And and in the meantime, have done things that are, I think, what you're going to see in October is immense increases in insurance prices, because they've done all sorts of things to gut the Affordable Care Act.
0: And. You know, we've heard that kind of messaging from other Democrats, basically nationwide at this point. It's kind of a focus on the issue, and the issue, the big issue, seems to be health care. Uh, I just did a piece not too long ago, kind of focusing on. Uh, you know, some of the statistics behind it. And it actually seems like it might be, it, for the first time in a long time, it seems like the Democrats finally have a grasp on how to run on healthcare. Um, it, it, you know, hasn't been too successful in basically the past eight years, it seems like. I am curious, though. We were recording this a day after Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen. Uh, You know, both uh, one was found guilty, Manafort, the other pleaded guilty. And we've heard Democrats say, don't focus on the scandals, focus on the issues. Uh, But I'm curious, I mean, at what point is there a point, I should say, where uh, Democrats should focus on the scandals? I mean, you are a lawyer, so you have some kind of background into the, you know, what's going on here.
3: Yeah, uh, the corruption In government is, I think, certainly going to be something that we are talking more and more about. I certainly, I find who really brings it up with me is Republicans and independents. A lot of people bought into Trump's message that he was draining the swamp. And instead, what we have seen is an unprecedented level of corruption um, at all levels, including what we've just both seen with his campaign manager and his lawyer. And so I, I think that certainly um, something I've been talking about all along is corruption and money in politics and having people in Washington who are there for the wrong reasons. And I certainly think that this is, is part of that same problem. That you have people who are using their government offices for the wrong reason, who are there for the wrong reasons, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of that tax fraud, you know, uh, and I know, you know, Trump, what, in a public debate it was basically like, like, well, only fools pay taxes or whatever. I mean, you know, then they go on and they will talk about uh, appreciating first responders, um, supporting our military. Um, all the things that they're talking about are paid for with tax money. Um, and I don't think that people appreciate that we are paying taxes uh, to support these vital programs that all parties agree are vital, and that you have people with millions and millions and maybe billions of dollars who have committed felonies evading. participating in paying their taxes. So I don't think, yeah, I know that I've heard the other side try to portray this as being, you know, just scintillating and involving, you know, whatever. But I mean, it involves pretty fundamental breaches of public trust and what it means to be an American and I think that bothers everyone.
0: How do you get, uh, you know, your issues that you want to talk about? Uh, I, I'm just curious, as a, as a candidate, how do you get that to break through as opposed to some of the more, um, you know, scandalous kind of stuff like, say, uh, you know, Russia or anything like that? How do you how do you break through and talk about healthcare, Or I, I guess let me ask it this way. Do people even want to talk about that? I mean, does that get brought up as much as, say, healthcare?
3: It really depends on who you're talking to um but i would say the vast majority of people who are not actively engaged in politics you know if you go door to door to talk to people they're talking about healthcare they're really not you know in my experience of course this is all anecdotal they are not focusing on things like russia now people who are more engaged politically tend to be much more concerned and upset about our elections being compromised, about, you know, having to worry about the midterms and whether or not Russia is continuing to try to influence our elections. Um, But I would say, you know, what people call the kitchen table issues um, is what I find most people talking about when I'm out and about in the community.
0: we've heard a lot of talk about what Democrats have been kind of doing right this year, uh, performing very well in some of these special elections. All the polls seem to indicate that there's going to be, you know, I I hesitate to say a blue wave because you never know with the way the districts are drawn, but they seem to be doing fairly well in public opinion polls. Is there anything that you've noticed that the party has done poorly this year that you think they could do better at?
3: Honestly, uh, when you watch what's happened in elections, like the special election right here in Ohio, I think they're doing things right. You know, you're seeing all over the country these huge swings. And a lot of it is because we're really, what I see the party doing is really focusing on door-to-door and voter turnout. And, um, and that's proving to be effective. I know sometimes people are a little skeptical about whether that is the best use of time, but it's, it's really that grassroots organizing. And, you know, for me, I've always felt kind of like that's why I was a Democrat. It was the idea that it was regular people um, and reaching regular people. Um, And hopefully to the extent that big money is drowning out our voices on TV or who knows who it is that's drowning us out on social media, um, hopefully that personal contact and focusing on having town halls and being very transparent and available to people, uh, I hope that that is going to continue to make the difference in these elections.
0: So your opponent in this race, Dave Joyce. He recently ran um, an ad where he was kind of uh, almost distancing himself from congressional Republicans and uh, the president. We'll play a clip of it.
2: Ohio's
1: Dave Joyce.
2: When Republican leaders in Congress tried to take away protections for pre-existing conditions, I said no. I won the fight to fund the Great Lakes Restoration, and when President Trump tried to take it away, I said no again. I'm Dave Joyce, and I approve this message because I'll do what's right for Northeastern Ohio even if it means standing up to my own party.
0: What do you think of, what what did you think of that ad? What kind of went through your head when you saw
3: it? That he was scared, um, that he was running scared away from his past record. Um, Because I know I have, he doesn't tend to show up in the district a whole lot. And I've been in the district and I know what the sentiments are. And I know people are disgusted by Congress's lack of action and failure to be a check and balance. And, uh, you know, I think he knows that too. And he has failed to actually stand up to Trump or to Congress on important issues. And so when he tries to say he has stood up to them, when he's voted, I think the number is now over 97% of the time. He has voted in line with Trump and and Congress. He ran on literally ran on repealing the ACA, bragged on his website up through March of this year that he had voted against the ACA every chance he got. And you know, when he finally took one vote um and in May of last year, it was after he had me, a healthcare lawyer, running against him. (laughs) <laughs> it was after the polling was showing that Americans actually wanted healthcare under the ACA. So, and they didn't need his vote. They already had enough votes to repeal it. Um, and so, you know, a few people got to, that live in swing districts, um, got to have a throwaway vote that didn't mean anything because they didn't need that vote. And sure enough, now he's trying to run on that. Um, when he did nothing to actually in advance of that vote, shift anybody else's vote stand up and say what was wrong he waited until the very moment of the vote after they'd counted heads uh to actually you know say even which side he was going to fall on so to me it's just complete political opportunism and then you know when that Addy also talks about the environment and I'll tell you in our district the environment is very important and you know Lake Erie very important to people He has a 7% lifetime rating from the League of Conservation Voters. 7%, one of the worst records in Congress on environmental votes. So to vote for funding to clean up the Great Lakes, you know, it's great, of course, anybody who, you know, lives around the Great Lakes, Democrat or Republican, obviously, is going to be a big advocate of that. But what you have to do is control the pollution going into the lake. And he votes against that every single time. Um, so yeah, I found it to be just pure political gamesmanship and very disingenuous. But obviously, he understands that he's in trouble.
0: And it's interesting, we've seen a similar strategy from uh, some of these, you know, Democratic congressional candidates this year, particularly towards like Nancy Pelosi, you know, she's sort of become the uh, the the target for a lot of Republicans. Uh, you saw Danny O'Connor say he wasn't going to support her. Connor Lamb said the same thing. I, I can't. remember. Did you say you were going to? I can't remember if you said you're going to support. Her. Are you going to support her? I, I refuse
3: question. to be drawn into deciding in advance of ever being elected to Congress who I would vote for once I'm there. I mean, we don't even know if we'll be in the majority next year. We don't know who's going to be running. You know, they used to think maybe Joe Crowley would be running for that office, and now he's not even going to be in Congress next year. He lost the primary.
0: <laughs> well, what do you think of the strategy that you've seen from a lot of the Democrats who are kind of? Honestly, kind of doing the same thing that Joyce was doing by sort of distancing themselves from one of the you know the party leaders and whatnot.
3: Well, I don't know what their motivations are if they actually are unhappy with her leadership and have somebody else they already know they would vote for. Um, I just am pretty focused on you know talking to folks in my district about the issues that they're bringing up, and none of them are bringing up being worried about who Speaker of the House is next year. So. <laughs>
0: So all the talk has been about Democrats possibly winning the house and uh, it wasn't that long ago that Democrats had the house and kind of really angered a lot of people which you know led to 2010 and they've been in the minority ever since they lost 60 seats then. So what do you think Democrats should do differently this time if you know say they do get control of the house? What what sh- how should they govern differently? Or should they govern differently, I guess?
3: Well, what I hope is that the election results are dispositive enough in November that people who have been on the extremes, like the Freedom Caucus, uh, realize that what Americans really want is forward progress. They're tired of the the extreme, you know, yes/no debates on things. They want to see people move forward. And they, they want to see people come together in a positive way. And so I hope there's a strong enough message sent by the election results that people will come in good faith to the bargaining table. I feel like what's happened in the past is there's just been you know, this you know, anything Obama's for, we're against, um, instead of trying to find a middle ground and uh, i do think there are middle grounds and we've done it in the past as a country and that's how we've passed a lot of really important laws and we need to start being able to get together again to move forward on things that actually matter to people
0: so we focused a lot we're going to wrap up here and uh at the beginning of the interview, we sort of focused on uh, you going to Yale. One of the more famous, uh, the best-known, I guess, quote, secrets about Yale is the Skull and Bones Secret Society. I believe, I believe President George W. Bush – actually, I think both Bushes were a member of it, uh, I guess which makes it a pretty poor secret society since everybody knows about it. Uh, what other secrets are there at Yale that people might not know about except for the fact that you lived above a pornographic bookstore?
3: <laughs> well, I guess one thing people may not know is that there are underground tunnels uh, beneath the law school and that uh, one of my jobs, I was always looking for ways to make a little money, was I, they gave me a flashlight and a walkie-talkie and alone, I would patrol those underground tunnels to make sure there was nobody down there who shouldn't be there. And when I look back on that,
1: I I just can't believe um, that they that, that was my job. <laughs> you, were, you were by yourself just walking around these tunnels? Yeah, with a walkie-talkie <laughs> and a flashlight. I look back on that job and I think, oh my gosh, if my daughter told me she was taking a job like that,
3: I would say no. That sounds like something out of a
1: horror movie. I've heard New Haven has pretty good pizza too right excellent pizza i do
3: miss the pizza there yeah
0: (laughs) all right betsy thank you so much for joining us we really do appreciate it
3: thank you